Right now, though, we are continuing to talk about one of the stories that has certainly dominated the news these past few days, talking about the parking permit plan in Vancouver. As we now know, the council in Vancouver has voted it down. Here's just a little bit of what Pete Fry said this morning, speaking with Global News. He had been in favour of the plan. I think at, at its core, what this proposal was, was a pretty modest um fee on curbside parking something that happens in cities around north america and the world and it's not unreasonable i think most of us would recognize that it's a public space and it's not free free parking is not actually free uh you know for instance my neighbors across the street same house we probably pay the same property tax exactly they have three cars we barely have one um and yet we say that pay the same taxes so we're not really paying for that extra use of space. And I think there needs to be an equitable allocation. At 13 cents a day, it wasn't an unreasonable allocation. Let's bring in Andy Yan, director of the city program at SFU. Andy Yan, thank you so much for being with us. Great, thank you. Thank you, Joe. What's your response to hearing, uh, it was a very close vote, to six to five, the fact that this parking plan was voted down? <laughs> well, I think that my initial reaction is that, of course, it, it was a modest fee, but it's a modest fee occurring in an age of anxiety in the city of Vancouver. I think that with everything going on in terms of housing affordability, the state of, of jobs, and really, of course, the pandemic, that I think that when it co- comes to a discussion of any fee, I think that I think that there is a particular stress and through which you kind of see it within the social media exchanges in the conversation of the, of the parking permits, and then also the kind of additional fees that would have been uh, also involved in the proposal. Um, The councillors that voted against it, many of them called it a flawed process, saying that there are better ways to go about this if the goal is climate change, stopping climate change and reducing emissions. Do you think there were flaws as well in this particular proposal? I think so. I think that when it came to an idea that was made at 12th and Canby, that how it affects people living in the in the rest of the city, I think that there wasn't necessarily the homework that in the connection and really understanding that while certainly the image was that you were pursuing that Ferrari on the west side, it's going to affect those uh, driving pickup trucks living on the east side. And that type of, I think, concern around equity and in terms of really what are you trying to get at, I think, is the kind of key question here. It starts off as a kind of question about climate change, and then it moves on towards now, I think, as you as you heard from Councillor Fry, an issue about equity uh, and equity about, about, about parking spaces. And I think that in that kind of mix, people get confused. Is it also, I mean, it came up repeatedly through the whole process that if Vancouver had gone ahead with this plan, it mm-hmm. would have become one of the very few cities in North America that has a citywide parking program like this. And certainly, uh, I mean, comparing it to cities like New York City or even looking broader, London, which Vancouver is not, it's nowhere near the size of those cities. Was it an odd program in, in trying to go ahead with it in that, in that sense? Well, at its core, it goes into the, at the question of, well, what's the issue you're trying to solve? I mean, you, you, you really touch upon, um, you know, we're not New York, we're not London, but then what's the underlying question and problem you're trying to solve through this particular type of initiative? Is it around climate change? Is it around fairness and access to parking spaces? Is it a issue around, around congestion? Is it an issue of having people um, shift their choices in terms of how they get around to, uh, to around the city and to work? So I think that it's the fact that it's, it was, it was an, it was an ambiguous series. It was an ambiguous series of problems that it claims to solve that I think it ultimately ended up with the vote that you had. 
Was there also an issue in that it was talking about, I mean, this was Vancouver City Council. We were talking about Vancouver, one part of a much bigger region of Metro Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Does does it work to have uh, something, if the true goal is climate change and climate action, does it work to have one city in a region like this working on its own? Well, that's exactly it, is that we're talking about one city that has 25% of the residents living in the region compared to 75% living outside the city of Vancouver. And does it have an effect on the scale that we need it to be, that um, the issue of really a lot of the traffic that kind of comes into the city of Vancouver is is from outside the uh, the city of Vancouver, that does that really capture um, the source of the problem? And again, it just goes into the key issue of really what's the problem you're trying to solve. Uh, the mayor said in casting the deciding vote against this that he, he just couldn't approve it, couldn't put his support behind it, n- mainly because it would not be equitable. It would go, it would be punitive for people perhaps living in basement suites or that right. need vehicles for their work. Is that, uh, I know some have accused him of, of kind of using that group of people as a bit of a scapegoat and that maybe there was a more political reason for this, but is that, is that a valid reason? I think that it really touches upon one of the shortcomings of the policy is that you find out that a place like the city of Vancouver, 50 percent of it, over 50 percent of its residents are actually renters. And, and and they're not necessarily renters in renter districts. They're actually distributed um, fairly uh, f- f- fairly throughout the city. You find renters throughout the city, and that it wasn't necessarily one that this policy had considered because as as w- the concern was that many renters didn't have access to parking on 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 site, and that the and that these charges would um, would un- unequally affect them. But I think that it's it's also I think un- understanding that there's there's the policy that that's in front of you, and then the city that you're trying to serve and People felt that this type of policy didn't serve that city. Uh, but Councillor Fry brought this up as well, because there's also been this issue of people using the phrase of no more free parking. But the mm-hmm. argument being people pay a lot of taxes. It's an expensive city to live in and that that's part of it, that perhaps if you have a home in Vancouver, uh, the parking goes with it. Certainly, if you live in the 10 percent that is permitted, each mm-hmm. home gets two parking permits that you can pay for. Mm-hmm. You can choose to or not pay for them per year. Uh, is it a question of, of free parking or equity and, and how we pay? for those things? Well, I think that you, again, hit it right on the head here is that uh, you're not sure through this policy. Was this a kind of redistributive policy in dealing with the issue of no free parking? Is it the issue of climate change? Is it the issue like you can see how this kind of you know becomes just an ambiguous an ambiguous problem that they have this solution. So I think that this is where it kind of muddled through. And I think that presented itself not necessarily one about engineering and, and, and transportation, but more about really how 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 you see and you build these solutions for people as opposed to act them. And does that kind of lead when it's muddled like that, when there isn't, when, when people are trying to figure out exactly what is this policy or what is the problem that's trying to be fixed, does, does it, is it easier then? And, and a lot of people were then making the conclusion that this was a cash grab. Exactly, exactly. It, 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 makes, it makes it so that um, it's, it's a question of trust. And it's a sense that are they, are they, do they really feel like they're being called out as opposed to really being worked with? And I think that this, is, this was the problem of this policy is that it felt like it was coming in from, from on high without really listening or really engaging the concerns of people who are living in the city of Vancouver. And I think that as such, I think the consequences are seen in the vote today or yesterday. 
All right. Well, Andy Yan, thank you so much. Great to have you on the program to talk more about this. Appreciate your time. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Joe. Well, some new modeling numbers are showing just how many cases we are seeing among children and specifically a spike in those cases when it comes to three of BC's health regions. That's some independent modeling. It was done by the BC COVID Modeling Group. That's a group of experts in epidemiology and mathematics. And they're looking at those cases among children who are right now too young to be vaccinated. Joining me to talk more about this is Caroline Colain, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Thanks so much for being back on the show with us. Good afternoon. Uh, What do these numbers show us about the cases and these spikes in cases among children? Yeah, so we have seen really pronounced rises, uh, which is not like what we saw last year when schools opened, when um, we sort of had similar direction, you know, up or down in all the age groups. We're really seeing some rises in kids under 12 at the same time as, you know, steady or declining overall in the province in older age groups. And so I think, you know, that does speak to, you know, vaccine, vaccines work, vaccination is effective, and that group is not vaccinated or it's not vaccinated yet. So um, we do see that steep rise, and I think it's something that we need to monitor, maybe tailing off a little bit, hopefully. Um, and I think it supports the introduction of uh, the mask mandate throughout uh, Kindergarten Plus and uh, it supports continued monitoring and looking out for what's happening uh, in schools and in that age group, uh, schools and otherwise. Uh, when we look at the regions where we're seeing these spikes as well, looking at Fraser Health, Interior Health and Island Health, does the modeling show why we're seeing that in those regions and say not other regions in B.C.? So a little bit. I mean, you can always drill down further and look at sources of exposure. And that's that's usually not like. Uh, public information. Uh, One thing to look at is Northern Health does have lower levels of vaccination uh, in those who are eligible, 12 and up, and it gets sort of higher and higher as as age goes up, which is understandable. Um, But actually what you see in Northern Health is not so much that kids are not spiking, but that both adults and kids are relatively, you know, high rates. And I think that does go along with, you know, vaccination is really effective in preventing infection with COVID and preventing transmission. And so um, that can explain part of those differences. Where we're really seeing infections is, of course, among the unvaccinated and kids. Um, kids are not the only unvaccinated people in the province, but they do make up a good portion of them. And so I think that's uh, playing out with how, how we interpret these numbers. Does it also show then, if we look at the numbers now, with more adults obviously vaccinated than compared to this time last year, but if we're seeing more cases in kids, is that because they're back in in more normal type scenarios, even though we do have that mask mandate for when they're in school? Is it because we've relaxed some of the rules? Is that why we're seeing more exposures and more cases? Oh, yeah, we're seeing more exposures. We have more community transmission and that will bring exposures into schools and we've seen that throughout the pandemic that of course you know COVID comes from other people it doesn't sort of sprout up out of the ground and schools are part of our communities so their exposures reflect what's happening in our communities and with vaccination we're able to be much more reopened than we were at this time last year um, and have much more contact but I think one of the main things we've done is open schools and that puts kids together with the other kids of their same age and of course they're all collectively not eligible for vaccination. So it's not like adults who may mostly mix with, you know, a mix of adults, some of whom are vaccinated. All of the children in a grade five classroom pretty much will be 
unvaccinated and same for the for the grades uh, under 11 who are not eligible yet. So I think that's a factor, too. And when we look at the numbers, I don't know if this modeling looks at this, but are we are we looking at the numbers of cases in kids that are of the age where they cannot be vaccinated and hospitalization rates as well? Um, so I don't have the actual slide in front of me during this interview. Um, the rates of hospitalization in kids are, of course, low. They're much lower than uh, than in other age groups. I think it was around 1% or maybe 1 in 100, 1 in 200 of kids with diagnosed COVID. Uh, that may change uh, with Delta a little bit. It's more severe than the COVID we had a year ago. doesn't look like it's that much more severe than the Alpha variant. Um, I should say another factor that's driving this I didn't mention is really the increased transmissibility of Delta. So it's not just vaccination, which we talked about, but also that what happened last year might not be a great model for this year partly because Delta is so infectious. And so that's another factor that is probably driving those numbers up more than we would have seen last year, even if we were doing everything the same, because the virus is actually really different. So what do you think will happen or or will it, how important is it? And we know that Pfizer is submitting to the U.S., the CDC for emergency emergency approval to give their vaccine, the dose to kids, to going to age 5 to 11. How much of a change will that make? I think that could be a game changer. Of course, we have to make sure it's safe and effective. It has to be approved and experts need to consider that we did a little bit of a preliminary, you know, non-expert exploration of risks that you might see from the vaccine if you extrapolate from teenagers and risks from COVID. And the risk from COVID is is not great. It's it's you know it's not as severe as it is in much older age groups, but that doesn't actually mean it's wonderful in kids. And uh, so you know, if, if I had to place odds, I'd say it's well worth vaccinating that age group, and it will protect. Not only them, the kids themselves, but it will protect the people around them. And kids need their parents, their grandparents, their teachers, their caregivers, and their communities. They have kind of unique needs for the the other people around them more than independent adults do. So we looked at kind of modeling direct and indirect benefits of vaccination. And and I would say it could make a huge difference uh, to kids, but also to our whole population by just getting that half of the unvaccinated group having access to vaccines is just going to be huge, I think. Right. And it sounds like like what you're saying, too, is it's not so much that I mean, it's not nothing. But if somebody in that age group gets COVID, while it's not likely to be as serious as somebody older, the issue is somebody in that age group having it, passing it on and and being part of the transmission. Right. And I think it's both like the, the fact that it's not the absolutely terrible levels of risk that it is in the elderly doesn't mean it's great. Like, not appalling doesn't mean, oh, that's totally fine. So if you think, well, one in 100 or one in 200 risk of hospitalization, there's also reports of the inflammatory issues long COVID. We don't have good data on those. We didn't put them in the report. Um, but they're not necessarily nothing. Kids, There have been kids who've died of COVID and kids really shouldn't die of a preventable infection if there's a vaccine available and if it's safe and approved. Um, so I hope that we'll be moving in that direction in the next few weeks.
Uh, I'm hearing even, I, I know it's anecdotally, but from parents that have kids in this age group back in school saying they're also noticing this year way more colds, that it feels like it's back where last year, because I, I guess we had so many of those cleaning measures and people were kind of staying away from each other. They noticed a big decrease in the common cold, but saying that that's back this year as well. Yeah, I haven't seen those data, but um, anecdotally, I can report both last year and this year, first week of school, somebody comes home with a cold and last year, you know, COVID test and oh my God, it's very worrying. I I do think that's a role potentially for expanded use of rapid tests um, because it's disruptive to think that you or your child might have COVID and need to isolate. And of course, the burden on the testing system, we did see testing rates go up. Part of that is because COVID went up. And so people had symptoms and got tested, or knew their friends had COVID and so got tested. And part of it is probably driven by colds. Um, We saw that in the modeling report, especially in kids age zero to four, Um, you know, lots of negative tests in a way coming through. So that could be a role for rapid testing, both to find the COVID and get ahead of transmission by finding it earlier, finding it when people don't have symptoms, but also to reassure people who have colds that that it isn't COVID and they can um, not worry as much about COVID. I think there's a dual benefit there. Right. Uh, And just looking then at the approval, then how important is it for the approval? And again, Pfizer has submitted, uh, I would imagine it's the sooner the better, but does it matter if we're into the cold and flu season, if it's four weeks away, if it's two months away, how, how much of an impact do you think that has on the numbers and getting these numbers down? Yeah, it's a good question. I, we didn't model that. I think it's uh, it's really dependent on what we would do in the meantime. So um, we've shown we're going to we're going to use masks, and that's great uh, if cases continue to rise. I think the signals from public health are that they are taking action. They've taken action in different regions in BC when cases got too high. Um, so if we're able to you know stop the pandemic by vaccinating all the adults and introducing measures, then that few-week delay may not have a huge impact. On the other hand, if we um, if we aren't going to do that, if that or if we don't feel the need to do that, then that could make a huge difference in terms of getting kids those vaccines before transmission uh, ramps up. I guess I would say a COVID vaccine will not prevent a cold, um, so it's <laughs> not going to have a direct in- interplay with the cold. And we haven't seen huge signs of really seasonal transmission. We might one day, but in the pandemic so far, um, there's been lots of places where they've had huge COVID waves in very hot weather. Um, and we've had, of course, declines from distancing measures even in the wintertime. So I'm not sure the seasonal piece is really the most important piece here. I think it's more the context of what else we're doing. That'll, you know, how much vaccines will have an impact will depend on um, how much we're relying on vaccination in kids versus, you know, are we really inspiring 95, 98% of eligible adults to get vaccinated? That, uh, that'll have a role to play too. All right. We'll leave it there. Caroline Colane, thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. Well, earlier this week, we were talking with a professional angler. He was one of the first people on scene at the Chequemus River after reports were started coming in about thousands of pink salmon that had been killed. BC Hydro has responded to this, saying they are ramping up protocols to make sure this doesn't happen again. But it's not the first time something like this has happened, and there are concerns that it could happen again. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Francesca Knight, President of the Squamish River Watershed Society. Francesca, thank you so much for being with us. 
Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, what was your response when you first heard about the fish kill and what had happened on the Chequemus? Well, it's happened before. Um, and when I first got onto the river a couple of hours after Clint, the professional angling guide you've spoken with, I was really shocked because this is definitely the largest one I have ever seen. And how many fish would you end or estimate were killed? My own estimate right now would be about 5,000. I expect that that number will go up because uh, BC Hydro's crews are collecting data right now, and the event was so large that it's impossible to calculate a number right away. And I know you've been in talks with others about this, and, and Clint talked about it as well, saying that there needs to be a plan in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. Do we know or do you know definitively what happened? I have a pretty good idea of what happened. Part of the problem was we had a big rain event, although not particularly large for this time of the year. The pink salmon were a couple of weeks late, so normally they might not be in the river at this time of year, but they were. So um, BC Hydro had to uh, spill water from the reservoir uh, to keep the reservoir uh, level safe, and they ended up spilling improperly, sometimes too fast, sometimes too slow, Uh, But at any rate, it led to the stranding and the mortality of a lot of adult spawning pink salmon. And this is not the first time they've done this to pink salmon. Uh, Was the last time, was it back in 2019? Back in 2019, yes. And, And comparing to what happened in 2019, which one was worse? This one was much worse. Uh, which that's got to be a bit frustrating given that when it happened in 2019 I would ma- I would imagine that steps were taken or discussions were had to try and at that time make sure it didn't happen again. Correct. Yes, they were and we were not informed uh of this planned uh flow reduction from the reservoir which we should have been because we would have been had, we would have had the opportunity to comment on how they should go about doing it. Uh we were the stakeholders were not consulted. Um, the regulators were and Squamish Nation were, so DFO, uh, the provincial ministry and Squamish Nation were informed about the ramp down, but, but the other stakeholders on uh, the Chequemus uh, Fisheries Committee were not consulted. Uh, so as far as you know, was anyone consulted that may have said or, or would have said, no, no, we can't do this right now, there's fish in the river right now, this will be, this will be catastrophic if this goes ahead? Unfortunately, those that were consulted didn't say anything. Hmm. And But do you think those that were consulted, should they have known that this could have been a problem? In my personal opinion, yes. Um, but BC Hydro should have known as well. I think the responsibility still falls on BC Hydro. Our, our hatchery manager here in Squamish was very clear with BC Hydro preceding this uh, ramping and fish kill event that there were still a lot of pink spawners in the river. So they, were, they were aware that the fish were there. They were more than aware that the fish were there. I know they've put out a statement saying that, kind of what you said as well, that on September 29th, they increased the spill release to manage increased inflows to the Daisy Lake Reservoir, um, and that the, that the storm inflows ended up higher than expected, resulting in a larger spill than anticipated. That was a written statement that BC Hydro yeah. put out. Uh, it yeah. seems like they're kind of blaming the weather, saying that there was more rain that, than was anticipated. 
Yeah, they're blaming the weather. And I think that when you're running a hydro plant, you have a pretty good idea of what the what the weather is going to be. And we had a smaller storm just before that. So and these types of storms are not unusual at this time of year, as you know, all of us living in the in, you know, southwestern British Columbia. So it's it's to me, it, it, it's a cop-out. It's part of the problem, but I don't think they tried hard enough to think about how to manage the water coming into the reservoir during the storm and then how to get it out of the reservoir to get the reservoir back to a safe level. They just, they just didn't think about it. Uh, have you been in talks since then as far as, again, pinpointing exactly what happened and figuring out, trying to make sure it doesn't happen again? Yes, we had a big meeting yesterday with BC Hydro and uh, the ministry and DFO and Squamish Nation and the angling uh, guides, and we all talked it out, but we didn't come to any conclusion about how it's going to be prevented in the future. Um, I sit on a committee for ramping and stranding, as does Clint, who you talk to, and um we have all these ideas, we kick around, we make recommendations, but our recommendations don't really go too far with BC Hydro. They, they still end up kind of doing what they need to do or what they say they need to do. Uh, could a first step even be then, like you said, not everybody that's on that committee or not everybody that's that's part of this that understands what's going with the ramping and, and, and such, could one... Uh, one simple step be to expand the communication plan to to make sure that in the future when something like this is going to happen again, that the list of people who get notified is bigger. A hundred percent. hundred percent. That's what needed to happen. Because there would have been a handful of us that would have commented on how they should have gone about releasing that water. And are you confident then in the future that will happen, that, that you and others will get notified? They said after the meeting yesterday that we would, but the proof is going to be when this happens again and when they need to ramp down again, are they going to inform us and give us the chance to comment? I just, I've been through this so many times, I really don't know what to expect, you know. I mean, I would imagine, too, the, the public outcry. I mean, seeing the, the footage, seeing the video footage and the photos of that many fish, that many dead fish, when we talk so much about conservation and the importance of salmon stocks, I would imagine the public outcry has been quite loud. Yeah, people are not pleased about it in, in our town and outside of our town. There's a lot of talk amongst uh, fisheries groups in the lower mainland that are catching wind of this and are not happy about it. What do you do next then, or what else can you do as far as, again, trying to stop something like this from happening again? We're going to have to continue to work on our ramping committee and with BC Hydro and the regulators and with Squamish Nation and keep trying to work towards solutions. Um, and BC Hydro really has to step up their communication about when these, you know, these planned spillages from the dam are going to happen and give the knowledgeable scientists and biologists and angling guides, the people that are on the river, the chance to comment on it, because we would definitely not have suggested they do it the way they did it. And Clint kind of touched on this as well, but can you, mm. can you remind people again why it's an important salmon stock, why the pink salmon are important and, and an important part of the environment, particularly sure. in that area? Yeah, so a lot of people think of pink salmon as, as not super important, but pink salmon are really important for the ecology of the whole ecosystem. So they come back 
in very large numbers. We don't really have sockeye in this watershed. We have the few odd sockeye. So pink, pink salmon represent the largest abundance of salmon coming back into the river. And even though, you know, the humans might not like to eat pink salmon, all the other animals do, and their eggs and their, their carcasses after they spawn provide much-needed nutrients to the river, and that feeds everybody else. Um, we even know that um, in years when pink spawn, the following year when their babies come out of the gravel, we see increased abundance, uh, an example for steelhead, because the steelhead feed on the pink juveniles. So they really are the, I guess, the, the, the prime nutrient pump for the ecosystems. And you mentioned the eggs, too, and I know Clint had said mm-hmm. that there was likely yeah. a loss of, of eggs in this spill yes. as well. Yes. So um, not only were there killed uh, adult spawners who had not spawned yet, but there would have been dewatering of what's called reds. And so that's the nest that the salmon build. Um, so they would have been they would have been uh, dewatered as well. So we we would have lost you know untold millions of eggs. Like I, I wouldn't even try to to estimate that. But yeah, it was it was a serious hit to this spawning this uh, spawning year for sure. All right. Well, hopefully uh, we won't have to talk about this again, or we won't see a repeat of this. But Francesca, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the program. It was my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Well, we don't talk about every break and enter in every community. We could talk about nothing else if we did that. But this one that took place in Delta, well, it has a whole lot going on. And also, it's probably part of the the nightmare of many. Imagine coming home to your house mid-afternoon and hearing some noises, knowing that nobody else was there, but then realizing there was, in fact, somebody in your home. This happened in North Delta on September 27th. And joining us to talk a little bit more about how things unfolded is Chris Lakoff, Public Affairs Manager with the Delta Police. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, This is really frightening uh, how it started. And I think a lot of people will be high-fiving the way it ended. But walk us through if you can. This was uh, mid-afternoon on September 27th. Young person comes home with three of his friends and realizes there's someone upstairs in his house. Yeah, so the youth had gone upstairs and realized uh, that he heard a sound that sounded like drawers were being opened. And he knew his parents weren't at home, so he immediately did the right thing, went outside, uh, and alerted his friends. Uh, Shortly thereafter, um, they actually saw uh, someone exiting the residence, and and that was a man who walked toward the garage uh, and went to grab a bike. And unfortunately, at that time, he also allegedly told the youth that he had a gun and uh, threatened them. the youth did decide to detain the man themselves, so they uh, essentially held him down and actually phoned the police right away, which we're very thankful about. Uh, there was a brief struggle, and unfortunately, uh, the man did allegedly bite one of the youth. Um, and bite bad? Was the was the young person hurt? I don't believe it was a bad bite, but there wasn't a lot of uh, information in the file about the nature of the injury. Uh, so they kind of tackle this guy or they get this guy to the ground. Mm-hmm. Police get there a few minutes later. And then what happened? 
Yeah, so uh, we arrested the man, and uh, he's currently in custody. He's waiting on a court date, uh, actually, in a few days' time. And he is considered to be a prolific property crime offender. So our officers have forwarded some fairly serious charges to Crown for consideration, including that of assault-causing bodily harm and and break-and-enter. Uh, when they were told, when the, the youths kind of confronted this man, uh, there was a struggle. He told them he had a gun. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you say to their actions? And clearly they either didn't believe him or felt that they could overpower him anyway. Well, in this case, I think rather than observe and report, which is what we recommend that people do, they determine to observe and react. I have a teenage son myself. I do understand how that might happen. Uh, But there's definitely no way I'd want him to risk his safety in that kind of situation. Absolutely, we want people to uh, report. That's a 911 call. Uh, Our officers are going to respond to that very quickly, typically. Uh, we don't want to ever see anyone in the public, particularly teens, put themselves at risk like that. And how, what does it say about, so this person, as you described, as a prolific property crime offender, the brazenness of on a Monday afternoon going through dresser drawers in a house, and even when you get caught, confronted by mm-hmm. somebody in the house, the response was to grab a bike out of the garage and try to take off. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously troubling, uh, and and we do treat these kind of um, uh, calls quite seriously. Uh, we, put, we resource them accordingly. Uh, property crime is one thing, but it, when it escalates to assault, uh, that's absolutely not something we want to see happening. And uh, our officers um, do patrols regularly in the neighborhoods. We, we have a really good response in this community for people who phone in any kind of suspicious behavior. And that's the kind of thing we do um, encourage people to do because we'd like to stop this kind of thing before it happens. So in this case, uh, well, do you know if the, um, was this after school or had they kind of taken the afternoon off school? I believe the officers got there right around three o'clock. So it could have been that, that one of the kids had um, you know, a free block in the afternoon and had traveled home during that free block. Uh, so it, it, the the uh, suspect in this case probably thought that no one would be home at that time. Uh, so, do we commend the, the the young the young the youngins for doing this and for getting a, a prolific property crime offender off the streets? Or well, <laughs> well, we're always happy to have a prolific uh, property crime offender in custody. Absolutely, but this is not the way that we'd like to see that done. Um, we do not want people to risk their own safety. So, please. Um, Uh, When you observe something, report it right away. Don't try and deal with it yourself. Our officers are trained to um, respond to this level of risk, these threats. Um, And actually, in conversations around the office afterwards, um, they're they're very aware of the risk that the that the teenagers um, took in this case. And that's not the kind of thing they want to see. And and just one other question about this offender. I would imagine he's probably been in and out of custody. Police know who this person is. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think with the more serious charges now, is there more of a chance he's going to actually get a sentence or get a punishment for this? <laughs> well, that will be up to the courts to determine. Uh, but we're definitely going to do our best to see that that happens. All right. Chris Lakoff, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
Well, earlier in the program, I played that story from CBS News. It was out of the States and a toy retailer almost in tears. Actually, I think she was in tears saying she didn't know what this season was going to look like because after what was on the shelves was sold, she didn't know where the next shipment was coming from and was very concerned about a supply crunch. So what is happening in this global shipping crisis and how might Canada fare? Joining me now is Robert Lewis Manning. BC Chamber of Shipping CEO. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Thank you. Well, how concerned should we be? We keep hearing about people saying if you're a holiday shopper, do it early. We don't know if there's going to be replacements of things on shelves. How concerned should we be? I think they're they're absolutely concerned for uh, for businesses about uh, uh, receiving and uh, exporting products. Um, and it's a it's it's a complex tale. I think I'll break it down maybe into three pieces, if that's all right. There's mm-hmm. a globally, um, the pandemic has certainly caused a lot of disruption. So different different regions of the world opening and closing at different times, um, based on uh, different timing of waves of the pandemic. So so that's created an incredible amount of disruption, and and a global supply chain. Um, has tried to react to it, but uh, with varying degrees of success. It looks, um, obviously, there's been a, an increase in demand. And then just to give you an example, here in the in the lower mainland, we're seeing about import volumes up about 15 or 18% um, over this time last year, which is an incredible increase. So um, obviously, there's changes in consumer habits, and there's some uh, pent-up demand um, as the economy has begun to open up again. So that, that's causing a challenge. Um, and then just the congestion of all of that. And that congestion is not just affecting the ships, but it's affecting terminals, it's affecting trucking, it's affecting railways. And uh, there's a lot of gridlock. So the normal, typical flow of goods, especially imports, has been disrupted. And, um, you know, there is actually cargo that arrives and maybe whoever's receiving that cargo doesn't want it at that same time anymore. And it's, it's sitting, taking up space in a warehouse rather than uh, being moved to, to its next location. So it is very complex. It's uh, multifaceted and it's probably going to be with us for some time yet, uh, probably into next year. So what does that mean, do you think, for goods that are destined to be on shelves and are supposed to be in those stores for the holiday season? I think if I just reflect on your lead-in, um, we're, we're fortunate in Canada. Overall, the level of congestion in Canada is um, a fraction of what it is in the United States, for example. So um, that fear of, of the shelves uh, not having goods on them, I think, is probably overstated. Uh, but it's it's when those goods will be there and, and um, how they match the sort of uh, retail demand, you know, ahead of Christmas and other holidays. So so that that that's hard to um, forecast at this point. Uh, but I don't think it's as dire as we're certainly seeing in other parts of the world. I think it's it's a great measurement of success that Canada has kept all its ports open during the pandemic Um, and a lot of collaboration has gone into doing that both from labor employers um, and federal and provincial government and and here in bc uh, we've had a lot of success i think in mitigating the impacts of COVID 19 on the supply chain and it it shows because uh, the ships are still coming in and out there's still cargo being imported and exported just perhaps not as quickly as 
as the demand would like it to. We've been seeing uh, other stories as well of really the difference between major retailers, things like Walmart, like the Home Depots, chartering their own ships in some places, some some retailers getting their own shipping containers. Has it really shown that difference between these major retailers and perhaps having that advantage compared to smaller businesses? I, I think there probably is some of that uh, um, scale that does advance, that does um provide advantages to larger companies. Uh, but I think there are, there are smaller shipments that are moving as well. It's just um, trying to, you know, it's one thing to get it across an ocean. It's another thing to actually get it to a, a small business that may be uh, a retailer or involved in manufacturing another product and getting to them um, through the hurdles of the terminal, uh, then to warehouses. And, and they have to get inspected as well. So, yeah, I think, I think there are some challenges there. Um, and those challenges affect those businesses. And, of course, all of it uh, has some impact on, impacts on costs because cargo that's sitting is, uh, is a cost of itself as an inefficiency. Right. What about exporting as well? We're, we talk a lot about imports to Canada and, and shipping containers that are coming here from, from elsewhere in the world. What about what Canada sends back or do they send back in those same containers? Uh, well, in a perfect world, the exports would uh, be the same volume as the imports, but I think we are seeing a bit of a, a dissimilar approach. Uh, some of those containers are going back to Asia empty uh, because they're trying to fill the incredible demand for imports. So that is a, a small inefficiency in the system, but we are seeing record, record levels of empty container exports as well, which which is positive in so much as it's helping with the imports. Um Hopefully, it's not having too dramatic effect on the companies that are trying to export. Uh, we're also seeing this, starting to see some unique um, solutions. So ships carrying containers that uh, didn't used to carry containers, they're being repurposed in order to, to try and uh, alleviate some of that uh, excessive demand. Hmm. Uh, does the labor shortage play into this at all, or labor shortages that we've seen in other industries? Uh, well, I can't speak uh, directly for trucking, but I have heard that uh, that there are labor shortages in the trucking industry, and also there there's some stress. They've been working uh, long hours, long weeks, long months during the pandemic, and I think that is having some impact. Um, we've been incredibly fortunate to have um, both a, a dockside labor force and a labor force on ships that has uh, remained relatively healthy throughout the pandemic. So it hasn't had uh, an impact in Canada like it's had in other countries, including the U.S., where, where just um, availability of labor and the effects of the pandemic on labor has caused disruption in ports. Oh, and a story that uh, I played earlier in the program uh, was looking at specifically at the U.S. or looking at California and the congestion off the coast of California and a call from the president saying these ports should all be open 24-7. Uh, I know there's even some suggestion of a link to one of the, the anchors of one of those ships causing that oil spill. But so you, you don't anticipate then that we're going to see a similar type of congestion situation in Canada? No, I don't. Um, I think... What we see now are, uh, you know, one to four container ships at anchor um, off of off of a port like Vancouver. That's the extreme, and and that would have been unusual three years ago. Uh, but we're we're not going to see anywhere near the congestion that's happening 
off ports like LA Long Beach, uh, which which is excessive. You know, there's there's sometimes sixty or seventy ships at anchor, container ships waiting to unload, which is which is very significant. Yeah, that's uh, that seems like a very large number. It is, um, and if anything, uh, it may be uh, it may have a positive impact. Uh, you know, we, there is some reserve capacity in the Canadian supply chain, and, and ports like Prince Rupert are are willing and able to pick up some capacity if it if it helps overall with uh, with moving goods through the supply chain in North America. And Robert, just before I let you go, you mentioned cost. Do you think this will have an impact, a wide-scale impact on the cost of goods? Or are we going to see a difference there? I think it's already happening. Um, and certainly we hear it within, the, within uh, supply chain partners that there are increased costs to moving goods uh, globally and through North America. Uh, so it is likely that there will be some inflation. And it's hoped that uh, by next year, uh, both the congestion and that uh, and that cost of transportation will be moderated, just just with more capability and more supply. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks very much.